I mean, certainly where my head was is I was thinking either he wasn't going to make it because of this thing I had done to him, or it was going to be this incredibly life-limiting thing for him and for our whole family, right? To, to have a child who isn't able to do, to function in a mainstream way because of something I had done to him. That was Lee Culp Henry. And yes, Culp, as in Kimmy Culp, because Lee is my sister-in-law. Today, I want to share with you something that has been going on within my own family in the five years since I've been doing this podcast. And it's Lee's story to tell. I think many of you will be able to relate to being knocked down by something big, getting back up, only to be knocked down again and again. It started with a terrible accident, then a terrible loss, and finally, a terrible diagnosis. Lee is whip-smart, funny, and thoughtful. And despite all of this, I have also seen Lee embracing life's joys, the goodness, laughter, family, friendship, travel, alongside the painful parts. I have seen Lee in all her humanity, which I'm excited to share with you. I'm Kimmy Culp, and this is All the Wiser, a show about hope and possibility on the other side of pain. And today, how sharing our painful stories within our families can bring us closer together. Hello, Lee Culp Henry. Well, maybe I should say today's guest on All the Wiser is my sister-in-law, Lee Henry formerly known as Lee Culp. Hello, Lee, and welcome to All the Wiser. Hello. You listen to the show, so I don't have to tell you that I normally have our guests introduce themselves. So I'm curious, how would you introduce yourself, Lee? Oh, man, I guess I should have thought of that before. Well, I am the youngest of three, your husband being my older brother, which I think is formative in my life, being um, the youngest and the only girl. And now I'm a mom of three boys who are loud and crazy, but wonderful. And adorable. And, and, and adorable. Funny. Yes. <laughs> and crazy, if I didn't forgot to mention that. Um, and I'm a psychotherapist in private practice and a basketball coach's wife, which is relevant because it means I move every couple of years, apparently. <laughs> so... Oh my gosh, on the long list of things we need to talk about, I didn't even think to talk about the fact that you move every three weeks. Apparently, yeah. You learn that you don't need very much stuff when you move a lot. I'll say that. And as we've we've already addressed, we are sister-in-laws. I'm married to your brother, Graham. And we also work together, kind of, sort of work together. We work for the same company, ABC News both of us out of college. Yes. Well, thanks to you. You helped me get my first job and it was amazing. And I met many of my very closest friends there and learned a ton. So that's all thanks to you. The funny thing about us working together and true, just 
in general in life. So at that point, we had the same last name because it was before you were married to Matt. Right. And you're Lee Culp. I marry your brother. So I become Kimmy Culp. And we worked on opposite coasts, but both working for ABC News. And everybody knew that we were sisters. But Lee is, how tall are you, Lee? (laughs) (laughs) 5'11". Lee is 5'11", dropped gorgeous and a really good athlete. And I, I say I'm 5'2", but that's like on my, you know, rounding up significantly. And so I think people were confused why you were 5'11", and I was 5'1", and we were sisters. (laughs) I, well, I would say the opposite is true, or not, or a different part is true, which is that people would come to me thinking I had the talent that you had, <laughs> and were sorely disappointed <laughs> when they would look to me for story ideas, and I'd be like, oh, I'm not Kimmy. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, but in spite of our physical differences, I think over the years, we've become much closer. Absolutely. Well, I gave you a hard time at first, but... <laughs> We, I think that's, we, we, we moved forward, and now um, you're a sister, not a sister-in-law. Oh, thank you, Lee. So, it's true. We've always wanted one. All right. Well, you found her. She's 5'1". And <laughs> <laughs> it's perfect. You know, in talking about, you and I went back and forth a little bit about this conversation and your brother, who I think is one of the funniest people I know, but maybe I'm biased because he's my husband, is over the past five years and me having this podcast, and obviously we spend a lot of time talking to people who have been through incredibly difficult things and about their pain and suffering and what they learned on the other end of it. And Graham's running joke has been like, Lee, one more thing and you're going to be on all the whites. (laughs) As if it was almost a threat. <laughs> well, unfortunately, to each answer, mine was like, "Can't aren't I already? <laughs> Isn't enough haven't enough? I, ha- haven't, <laughs> haven't I qualified? I right. Yeah. I don't need anything more. Haven't I qualified right. at this point? <laughs> I also was really interested in talking to you and love that we're doing this because as the show is ending... I think I'm more cognizant than ever that so many people who listen to this show and and the community that we've built in this past five years, as we've been sharing, have been going through their own pain and suffering, whatever that looks like. And you being my sister-in-law and someone that I'm very close to, I have known about everything you've been through, right? I've known and witnessed the, the the hardships, the obstacles, the pain, and the suffering. And so while this is a little bit different than an episode, it was a little, I don't know. And, and having this conversation, you, it felt like acknowledging everybody else who has been listening, who has also been going through really hard, difficult things. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Um, and I think that's what's been so special about your podcast is certainly, you know, during the pandemic when things were so isolating, I could go for a walk and listen to certain things and learn a lot, right? But also not feel so alone. Just knowing that other people go through things and they can be resilient and sometimes they're not resilient and all of that is okay. Yeah. I, looking back, 
feel like your life took an unexpected turn of events, which ended up being a series of events in 2018. Is that fair? Absolutely. Where were you in your life? Just sort of set the stage so people have some context and frame of reference before 2018. I mean, honestly, up until 2018, I felt like I had this pretty charmed life. You know, it didn't, it felt like things kind of worked out as long as you worked as hard as you could, you could get what you wanted, right? And I felt like our family that you are a part of now was always healthy and good and wonderful. And we just kind of had, things just kind of worked out. Yeah, I would say I I feel that way, you know, even about your brother and you come from a really loving, big, healthy, fun, Southern family who, um, it's a really great family. Yeah. It is a really great family. And to some extent, not even to some extent, a very charmed life. Yeah. That's that's certainly how it felt to me. I felt like, you know, I, God put me in this world in in a really special position and I was thankful for it. Yeah. Yeah. So you're living, at that time you were in New York, as you said, your husband is a college basketball coach, and so you had already bounced around the country, but you're a young mom living outside in Jersey City. We live in Jersey City, yep, outside New York. You have your first baby who's adorable, two-year-old toddler, deliver your second, and explain to me what happened in the hospital. Yes. So had my second, everything was great, sweet little baby. And then, so about 36 hours after he was born, so it was the second morning um, after he was born, he woke up, of course, hungry. um, And he was making like a lot of like indigestion noises, right? You know, noises babies make, but he was clearly uncomfortable. And so it's it's about 7 a.m. in the morning. I put him on my chest. I'm trying to soothe him. And I fell asleep with him on my chest. And my next memory is turning over, over the bed, and him falling and hitting his head on the ground of the hospital room, which is a cement floor. Ugh. You know, there's no... You don't have carpets in hospital rooms. There's no cushion. And this baby who was 36 hours old, seven-pound tiny baby hitting his head on the floor. And it's hard to explain what that felt like. Um, Terror, for sure. I start screaming. Of course, my husband's in the room. He's asleep on the couch. And so he has no idea what's happened. I start screaming. I run down the hall with him in my hand, arms and I say to the nurse I just I just dropped him out of the bed he just fell out of the bed and they took him and they examined him and they said oh well he looks he looks great like he's fine he's alert and he's fine um you know we're on shift change so someone will come in and check on you in a little while and I was like wait <laughs> but this baby just fell you know the hospital beds aren't that low either you know I was like this baby just fell out of the bed and hit and, his, and yes. hit his head. This feels more feels bigger than that, right? It didn't feel like oh, you know, in shift change. So then, somebody, another nurse had heard me, 
a different nurse, not my nurse. So she came in and she goes, I'm sorry, what happened? And I told her. And then that started this cascade of events of people just basically rushing in the room, you know, like you've never seen, right? That uh, just the awareness of how serious this was really escalated really quickly. About 15 minutes later, a very large, um, I mean, it's a hematoma, I learned it in retrospect, but a very large bump on his head, kind of the side back of his head showed up. You know, it's almost the size of his head because a baby's head is so small. You know, it's this massive bump. And it, it just went, things got very blurry and very crazy really fast from that point on. I, well, first of all, I never heard about that first nurse. My mouth dropped when you said that because it, the second reaction it makes all the sense in the world. I mean, right. it just seems like the definition of an emergency that, yeah. Well, it's so interesting, I, you know, I mean, through my own therapy, of course, I've learned to like, for some reason, that nurse is always a part of my story. Uh-huh. Like, I could just say, oh, here's what happened and everyone went crazy. But there's something about her that's really important to how I experienced it. Was it like the lack of validation? Yes. Or, or yeah. there was something like that. Like, the, the recurring dream I had for four years after this was that I call 911 and no one picks up. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, it's it, it's the needing help and not getting it. There's something about that that signified. yeah. That, that for sense. me, that for some reason, that's become a really important part, even though it's actually not. But for me, it is yeah. somehow. Yeah. But yeah, it, it was just, it, so then we went through an ultrasound, a CT, then we had to wait a while for an MRI. But just, you know, of course, seeing your baby go through these things is absolutely horrifying in itself. But then hearing the feedback on what these things were or what the results of these things, waiting was awful and then hearing them was awful. Um, it turned out that he had three skull fractures, two on one side of his head and one on the other side of the, his head. They think what happened was, because the bar was up on the bed, which people always ask, um, but I, they think he hit his head on the bar of the bed and then fell and hit his head on the other side on the floor. Oh, God. Which is horrifying to think about, right? I mean, mm -hmm. he's a seven-pound, tiny, precious baby. So skull fractures with associated hematomas, epidural and subdural, whatever all those things mean that I, you know, was obsessed over for a very long time. Um, they started prepping him for brain surgery right away because the assumption was that they were going to have to drain some bleeding out of his head. So they start prepping him for that, and you're just – and I couldn't hold him at the time. I, I couldn't touch him, hold him, be with him because I was too scared. So my lovely husband, thank goodness, was doing all that and holding him. They wouldn't let me breastfeed him because they were, again, preparing him for brain surgery. But for about 12 hours from the time the incident happened until late that night, we thought we weren't taking a baby home. Looking back, how did you even get through, you know, those first 12 hours? I mean, to say I was a wreck is a total and complete understatement. I had the most wonderful nurse. Her name is Katie. She, I 
love her dearly. And she, I think, was assigned to just follow me around that day. (laughs) So she basically was like by our side the entire time. Like they wouldn't let me be alone at all because I was so hysterical. Um, They wouldn't let me walk, for example. I had to like everywhere I went, I had to go to the bathroom. I had to go in a wheelchair because I was so hysterical about what had happened, of course. Yes, yes. Um, And I'll just never forget, um, you know, I am a social worker and I used to work in the hospital and they had this social worker and she is, was this lovely girl just out of school though. And, and she comes to my room and I'm, I'm literally like screaming, flailing on the bed, uncontrollable. And this poor, sweet little girl <laughs> says to me, she's like, should I turn the TV on? <laughs> and I was like, I don't know, maybe like, I don't, you know, I don't know, is the TV going to help? And it's so interesting Uh, in retrospect, it probably did help actually, right? Because you just are looking at something different. Um, Did they give you volume or anything to calm down and regulate? I I don't know that I could handle. They did not give me volume, but they gave me Ativan. Okay. But I had to advocate for it. You know, I had to call and be like, I'm not okay. This, yeah. I'm not going to be okay. Yeah. Um, and so my doctor, who was wonderful, my UBGYN got me medicine. And she also got us the ability to stay another night. You know, I was supposed to be discharged that day. Um, of course, of course, my child was going to stay, but she got an ability for my husband and I also to stay. Well, because you also have to now make a series of medical decisions. Oh, absolutely. I, right. And so you're clearly regulating your emotions to whatever is possible is important to get that support. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, I, I really, I, the, the nurse, Katie was an absolute angel. She helped me more than I, more than anyone's ever helped me in my life. Probably. I mean, she was absolutely wonderful. And then the NICU nurse also, Megan was amazing too. And, and just having, you never, you don't realize how amazing people in hospitals are until you need them. And they are just amazing. And so that, I couldn't have done it without them. Were they giving you a worst and best case scenario or? You know, I wish I had more clear recollection of what those things were. I mean, I think that essentially the takeaway was, given the extent of the injuries he had, that there was going to be some significant things that needed to happen. You know, they thought the the brain surgery of of releasing the pressure from his brain was almost a given. I mean, certainly where my head was is I was thinking either he wasn't going to make it because of oh. this thing I had done to him, or it was going to be this incredibly life limiting thing for him and for our whole family, right? To to have a child who isn't able to do to function in a mainstream way because of something I had done to him. Yeah. And that was all I could think about. All I could think about. There was no other. It's funny. Sometimes I'll try to, because I I tend to exaggerate (laughs) on things in life. Um, And I I would try during this time. And I haven't told the story very often because it's, it's very hard to tell. Um, but when I have told it and my husband's been around, I'll try to say, oh, but, you know, they said maybe that he'd be fine or whatever. And my husband was like, no, they really didn't. Yeah. And so hearing his perspective of there wasn't a lot of positivity being thrown around at that time. Yeah. 
you know, I've never seen, I mean, they literally had us go from the maternity wing to the NICU. And we had, there were probably 20 people there, including like neurosurgeons, you know, that they're wheeling him at this point in one of the, what is, is it an incubator? Is that what it's called? Yeah. They're wheeling him down the thing and literally sprinting down the hall with me and my lovely nurse Katie and my husband in a wheelchair, you know, going after them. It was the craziest thing I've ever seen. Yeah, it feels like a bad dream. It was a, you know what? And I kept thinking I'd wake up and (laughs) I didn't. Um, I mean, it it was really crazy. And then almost as crazy is as horrible and horrifying as those 12 hours were. 12 hours later, they essentially came back to us and said, he's fine. Yeah. And it was like, what? How is that possible? And they had done the CT scan. And instead of following up with another CT scan because of radiation on a, you know, such a small baby's brain, they did an MRI. And they said that the MRI results came back, that the bleeding hadn't continued and had been contained. And he was fine. But you were not fine. Oh, no. No. And I, I also couldn't understand that I couldn't understand how we went from preparing a child for for brain surgery to saying he's fine. Well, I wonder if there isn't a, like that whole different. I mean, this feels more like gauzy and murky, but again, the lack of not validation, but you like hearing that and thinking, no, but what if? What you know what I mean? Like just oh. reconciling that. I I just thought they weren't, yeah, and maybe that's why that first nurse becomes so important, right? Because I'd been told by somebody that, you know, was supposed to be caring for me, that everything was fine. Yeah. And I just, I couldn't believe the doctor. I And to some extent, I'm I'm not sure I still do. And he's a lovely, wonderful five-year-old who is doing amazing in kindergarten, right? He's the funniest kid I've ever met, right? He's great. But I'm still not sure that I believe that there aren't ramifications from this thing that happened, right? And so that's something that I live with every single day. Every single day, he'd write when he stubs his toe. I'm like, I wonder if that's because of what happened that day. Yeah, and that and that that's a lot of what you know. When you and I talked about having this conversation, what I heard you say is the psychological postpartum piece. You're ready to talk about because of how deeply painful it was for you. And, you know, the other aspect I want to talk about with this is the shame that you felt. Yeah, that that's absolutely right. And there's a there's kind of a double piece of it, too. There's the postpartum part where no matter what kind of birth story you have, right? You've just given birth to a baby and it's hard and exhausting. And there is so little focus put on the mom's physical and or emotional health at that time. That really bothers me, right? And that's something that I really struggled with because, and I I still, like, I, I look at this accident that happened to my sweet little baby as my fault. And that's something I've worked through therapy a ton with, that's never going to be something that I'm going to not say it wasn't my fault because it was my fault, right? I fell asleep. I know we all know, and don't do it if anyone's listening, don't fall asleep with a baby on your chest. But I knew that. 
right? I knew that and I messed up. But is there room to give yourself just the grace that you just birthed a baby and you fell like fell asleep? Like how human is that? Yeah, I think I mean, I think I've gotten to a place where I don't despise myself, right? I mean, I I, I now see it as an accident as yeah. opposed to like as like opposed a, to like a moral failing. Exactly. Yeah. So to go back to that week, you're discharged. I should say, just to in talking about zooming out from a family perspective, we were on the West Coast. You have your new baby boy. I remember getting the pictures. You know, it's that, ah, oh, she had right. the baby. And then all of a sudden it was like nothing. <laughs> and then it was going for days. And then we and we kept saying, like, there's kind of like you know, normally there's pictures and updates and going home or, you know, you guys are a close family. And it was right. as if just complete silence. Oh, I went um, dark. I went very dark. Very <laughs> for, dark. For a very long time. So what, how does the rest of that, you know, those early days and week play out for you and for him? Yeah. I mean, so he stayed in the NICU for about a week and we... So we, where we lived in Jersey City, you know, it's about 45 minutes from the hospital. So we were taking turns kind of sometimes staying in a hotel nearby and sometimes going back home, um, obviously for our two-year-old. But he was in the hospital about a week and then he got to come home. After that, basically no, no care instructions at all. Just you're going home with a healthy baby. Good luck, right? Which has always been crazy to me anyway. <laughs> but like no extra care given to this situation. But so he was well, as far as everyone was telling us, but I wasn't. And I think that's where everything really got got started. I took him to the doctor as often as the doctor would see me. It was like, and I, my husband joked that I wanted a neurosurgeon to move in with us. And I didn't think that was funny. I was like, do you think there's someone looking for a place to stay? <laughs> they can move in rent-free as long as they'll check on this baby you know, once a day. I, I needed constant reassurance. Constant, constant reassurance. Right. There was no like down to the minute reassurance. Down to the minute. Absolutely. Yeah. And so I'd see the doctor as often as they let me. I had a wonderful doctor, um, but she started limiting me to once a week. <laughs> um and the neurosurgeon would only see me, I think he only ended up seeing me two or three times because he he told me what at one point if he saw me in the waiting room again, he was calling the police. So that, I mean, that's how bad it got, though, is that I needed this constant reassurance that he was okay. And and what that led to for me, because you couldn't see the doctor all the time, was was pretty significant OCD behaviors of looking stuff up online about his condition, bra brain injuries and in babies. Um, I convinced myself that he had cerebral palsy. And so I went really deep down that rabbit hole of what that looked like and what it would like look like at each developmental phase. I mean, I would spend hours and hours and hours of the day just researching what a one-month-old baby was supposed to do, what a two-month-old baby was supposed to do. And I would convince myself that he couldn't do those things. So you have a two-year-old, a newborn, very traumatic, and living in a constant state of catastrophizing your future, the future health of your little, little baby who you think you are 
holding yourself responsible for his this pain and suffering that you're projecting in your in your mind. Projecting feels like the wrong word. That's not what I want to say. Um, but I think it is projecting. It was, but it was certainly projecting my anxiety onto this yeah. sweet little baby. Right? It's projecting how I'm feeling. Onto how are you what? even coping? And- oh, I so I don't remember anything in those first three months. I have like little glimpses of sitting in a chair by my window and Googling developmental videos, but I don't have a single one from him. I was there, I think. (laughs) But so it's, you know, it's very, I don't know. It's hard to say what that time looked like. I do know that, I mean, my husband's wonderful, but he's also busy at that time of year. Um, I know like when he would travel, I would make either my mom or his mom come up for the night or the weekend because I was too scared to be alone with the kids, in particular with the baby. The And this piece always breaks my heart when I think about this, Lee, but the amount of shame that you felt, mm. and shame and secrecy is something we've talked about so much on this show. And I think that it's something that everybody can relate to, even if it's just in a very small way. But what was your experience of the shame and the need to hide? And we're not just talking about, again, you you explained what a close-knit family you are. You It was like, poof. Oh, yeah. I told my parents, my in-laws, and I think I told one friend and the doctors, and that was it. I couldn't tell anyone else. I just couldn't say it out loud. And I couldn't face kind of what what people were going to think of me, but I think even more like what were they going to think of of my child, right? Were they going to look at him differently? Were they going to think about him differently? Were they going to think he had something wrong with him? It just scared me. And so I, I totally alone and on purpose alone. But and I, you know, I made up a story about why he was in the NICU because people, you know, people ask why your baby's not home. I had a whole story. But yeah, I didn't tell anyone. Hey listeners, in this last season of All the Wiser, I have a favor to ask you. We have a big dream of putting together an episode with all of your reflections on this podcast. We want to know the difference this show has made in people's lives. If you're a frequent listener, or if you're new to the show, we would love to know How have you been changed by the stories you've heard on All the Wiser? Was there a guest or an episode that you'll never forget? A piece of wisdom you've incorporated into your own life? Please let us know. You can call or text us at 310-243-6364 or send us an email at hello at allthewiserpodcast.com. You can also DM us on Instagram at All the Wiser Podcast with your thoughts. It really means the world to us. So thank you. Families travel to New York for life saving treatments for their kids. They travel there because there are some of the best hospitals in the world. New York is expensive, and it is not home to these families. 
The Ronald McDonald House of New York has private bedrooms, kitchens to cook, a library to read, playroom for kids and their siblings, support and wellness services, and a community of families going through similar things. You can learn more about Ronald McDonald House of New York by going to their website, rmh-newyork.org. That's rmh-newyork.org. So did you immediately get help for the postpartum or what are you doing to get back just to yeah. <laughs> first base? No, yes. I don't know. No, I mean, at first, no, because, and the reason is because I didn't think I deserved help, right? It was like, I messed up. I can't be spending any of our time or resources or money on me getting help, right? Everything that I have needs to be going towards this baby, right? So I couldn't, it was impossible for me to even conceive of getting help until my husband and mother told me I didn't have an option. I didn't have a choice. So then I did find a wonderful therapist and then she told me I didn't have a choice but to go on medication. So then I found a great psychiatrist um, and started medication and went through the very long process that I'm still working on of of getting through that. But it, it was hard for me to even take the first step because I didn't think I deserved it. Yeah. But then I will say that I think the only thing that would have snapped me out of this, right, is something happening to my dad <laughs> and something happened to my dad and that it, all my memories start almost immediate with so this his is, diagnosis. This is February. I had the baby in February and my dad was diagnosed with leukemia in May. And your dad is literally your person. Yeah. Oh my gosh. He is my person. He, I mean, he just, I don't know. He thought I walked on water. And yes, he did. <laughs> no one no one will ever think that again. So I really, I miss him. Um, but yeah, so he, you know, he was diagnosed with leukemia in May. And that, I was in this incredible postpartum OCD obsessive phase that almost just got cut in half when my dad got diagnosed. And I think it was the only thing that could have trumped how I felt about, you know, this horrible accident that happened in the hospital, except this diagnosis, which then became, you know what, now I have to take care of my dad and I have to take care of my mom. And I have yeah. to, and I, not I have to, I want to, right? I, I have the most wonderful parents in the world and being there for, for them became more important than looking at developmental videos. Yeah. And you are very, very close with your parents. I mean, you talk to them. You talk to your mom every day, is that right? Yes. My brothers would say I talk to them too much. Yes. Yes. Um, <laughs> and when I say, oh, I can't not grab my heart when I think about how much your dad just freaking adored you, Lee. I mean, he loved, I mean, he used to come visit us and he would like walk in. I think I've told you this. And he'd be in the house like five minutes and like looking at his phone and he'd be like, huh, Lee's, yeah, she's about to have lasagna for dinner. I mean, just <laughs> everything you did. 
the smallest I thing. I mean, I really loved it too. <laughs> yeah. Oh God, you guys together. I just loved people caring that I had lasagna for dinner. <laughs> it's really but great. But that really, I mean, it was just a really, really close and beautiful, just father daughter relationship that I think is 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 pretty unique. So it's three months after, and the di- the way I remember your dad being diagnosed, because obviously your brother, I remember that day, it was pretty much like there's a chance, but it, there's also a high likelihood that you have six months to live. Was that how what you heard? Well, certainly what I heard was that the most likely scenario was about six months to live. I felt like the progression of and the roller coaster of it was it was more than six months, right? It was how long was that period? About before seven. He died. Not yeah, that much seven. longer. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you were up close. Explain, you know, what was happening with your dad and your new day to day reality. Right. Well, it went pretty pretty quickly from diagnosis. You know, it was at the point where he immediately checked in the hospital for a month-long stay of, of getting chemo around the clock. And so, you know, my brothers and I and my mom, of course, just started kind of rotating in hospital to see him and as he went through these things. And what started out as a really positive thing pretty quickly, you know, by June, he was in the ICU and you know, looked like he might not make it. That's how rapid it was. Um, and that was the beginning of June. So, you know, weeks later, he was in the ICU and we thought he was going to die. But true to his form, he bounced back from that, which was still, I think, a miracle. I still don't know how that happened. But pretty quick. And then, and just from that point on, he really was not himself. In September, we got him back for like a few months I mean, a couple of weeks, which was amazing. And the uh, amount of, you know, another thing that I think are many people listening or living with or have experienced is caregiving and what that looks like. And the amount of caregiving, when I think about it, two little boys, one who you are, as you explained, right, just desperately terrified about his health and well-being and figuring out how to caregive for him. Just alone, caregiving for a two-year-old and a newborn is like a real deal thing we could talk about for an hour. But on top of that, you're very involved in caring for your father who's dying from cancer and caregiving for your mother who's this very um, stoic, strong woman who very quickly is just so vulnerable. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. But so it's interesting that to me was a break, right? I needed a break from the baby OCD and the hospital cancer. That situation to me was like a respite. I really enjoyed going. And and obviously, I don't want to see my dad at the hospital, but like that became a positive spending that time for me, being with him and being with my mom. But as, as if not to throw anything else on this whole thing, then um, in April, so right before this happened, my husband lost his job. <laughs> oh, I forgot about that. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then it's in the basketball world, it's not like, I mean, he didn't, 
his boss took another job, which meant he no longer had a job where he worked. So then he took another job two hours away from where we were. So then my husband moved. (laughs) So it was, you know, it was, it was a time. Oh my gosh, Lee. Oh. Yeah. (laughs) And I think it's important not to, you know, thinking about the whole picture and how important this conversation about maternal health, postpartum health, all of these things is. It is not as if your dad gets sick and somehow it's the magic wand that takes the other half away. This is still, will you tell me? How how yeah. are you taking your dad out of it? How Right. How am and, I doing at that point? Yeah. yeah. Well, it's almost like it became so the issues with my baby became the less immediate ones or the less urgent ones, right? They were still there always, right? But it's like if you What's the biggest fire? In what's front the of me? biggest fire, right? And that was the biggest fire. That other one was still burning. That other one's still burning, right? It still burns every single day. I wish it didn't. Um, and it's gotten smaller, but that was still always there. I still took him to the doctor once a week. <laughs> For the entire first year of his life, I think I took him to the doctor once a week. What was your worst fear with his long-term health? That's a good question. I mean, I think pretty quickly it became, or or perhaps still is, is he going to have learning difficulties, right? Is he going to have trouble processing and learning information, you know, in the way that we classically think of using our brains? Is there going to be something in his brain that isn't quite working, on that. Because of course, all this crazy research I did in the beginning, and that's one thing I learned about Google, you can find whatever you're looking for, right? So if you want to find that a head injury is going to cause ADHD, you can find it, right? If you want to find that a head injury will not cause ADHD, you can find that too. You find whatever you're looking for, you can find on Google. And I I remember my therapist saying, okay, so he's doing okay now. What are you going to do if he's, you know, eight years old and gets diagnosed with ADHD? And I was like, I'm going to check myself into a mental institution and never come out. And that was my response. And, and you know, now, right? And, and I felt that way 100%. There was like no and other- And by the way, if you want to talk about a genetic disposition to ADHD, <laughs> just your dad, perhaps. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, I, no, that's a thing. It's like there's there are a million reasons why people have ADHD. And there's nothing bad with ADHD, right? It's not. It's great. It's fine. I mean, yeah. it's not. It's fine, right? But to me, it wasn't that he had it. It was that I caused him to have it. No, no, no. I'm right? just saying yeah, this, yeah. that you no, would know, attach right. that to it. And there was a high likelihood that he had. I mean, because right. Graham has it. Yeah. Our, For the record. My kids. Yeah. Sweet baby um, probably has it. <laughs> but now that I'm older at eight, I can, I can look at that and say, I can still care for him, right? I can still take care of him even if he has this, right? But at the time, I, cu- I couldn't, right? So that was my biggest fear, was that something was going to happen with the way he learned or the way he developed and that I was going to tie that to the accident. And you know what? It turns out every single thing that happens, I continue to tie to the accident. Yeah. What would be examples of that? Um, I have fully convinced myself that he has allergies because of my anxiety in raising him when he was a baby, that my anxiety somehow caused him to have allergies, right? And I can tell you exactly how I get there because you can be like, that's crazy, right? But I can tell you how I get there and I could probably convince you that it's it's true. 
Um, but that's a good example. So then every day when he can't have peanuts and he can't have cashews, I think this is my fault. Right. And let's not even, I mean, both of our families have history of allergies, right? That's, this is not necessarily a coherent thought, right? But I think it every day. Yeah. Right. Or he comes home from school with a yellow on a behavior thing, right? I'm like, oh, he can't do self-control because of that day. Yeah. Who would he be differently if that hadn't happened? Yeah. Gosh, Lee. Yeah. But then I also think he's the most wonderful, hilarious, amazing kid. He's the most charming, hysterical. He's like dynamic. Oh, he's my awesome. gosh. awesome. And so if – He is going to be the life of so many parties. Oh, my gosh. It's kind of terrifying. Uh, but, it, but like, if if he did develop in these ways because of that accident, okay, right? Yeah. I, and yeah. on my good days, I can get there. I never on my good days get to a place where I'm like, this accident doesn't continue to affect him. But on my do- good days, I can say, if it did, that's okay, right? And on my bad days, it's – I've ruined everything. Getting back to the timeline of that year and everything, your dad passed away in December. December. You lost your dad in December. And just... I saw you as just taking such great care of your mom, but obviously you were just in a world of your own grief. What I saw you doing was caregiving for your boys and your mom, but I can only imagine your own pain. Yeah. I mean, grief is, I certainly never experienced grief like that. Losing a father is unlike anything You can't explain losing a parent to someone who hasn't lost a parent. It's really, I don't know, and it's unique to each person, I think, too. It's horrible, and it's something that you still deal with in in very interesting ways, right? Even now, it's been five years, right? Even now, there, there are ways that it affects me that I don't even realize, that my husband will be like, do you think maybe you're doing this because of grief? And I'm like, oh, you know what? I think you're right, (laughs) right? It's still, it's just always still there. It stinks. Yeah, it stinks. It's funny because in this conversation as I'm like, when I do these interviews, I'm always thinking about how a story unfolds. And I feel like I keep going back and forth and I'm not staying focused on carrying one thing through. And I think that's because that was your story. I think that's right. I think that's exactly right. It was it was impossible to kind of to separate them. Yes. And yet they were separate. Like I had this memory of I I brought the kids down. Dad was in the hospital and he was really sick. And I had my babies at the residence inn where my mom was staying. And I've got, you know, a two-year-old and a baby at the residence inn, which, you know, if anyone's done that, it's not ideal. My husband, I think, was was doing something for work. And my baby wouldn't stop crying. I couldn't get him to stop crying. He just, I, who knows, right? Why do babies cry? I don't, I'm, I've never been good at that. <laughs> it's crying. So I had to call my mom from the hospital. 
And she had to leave my dad, who was sick. He ended up in the ICU like a few days later. She had to come home and soothe my baby because I couldn't do it. And I'll just never forget that, right? It's like my lovely, sweet mom comes and saves the day with my baby, right? And she did. She got him calmed down right away. But, but I needed that help. But he needed that help, right? And, and that's how it all was just so intertwined in those ways. Yeah, I mean, it was just hard. Do you still feel shame? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. So I want to talk about shame and secrecy, which were a big part of this. I can't yes. remember when I first learned or, or your brother. I remember very well when I first told you and, and my other sister-in-law and my brothers. We, it was that summer in June. I told you guys, I think dad was in the ICU, actually. And I told you guys what happened. And I, I, think, I think it was you, or maybe it was Graham, was like, yeah, mom told us a long time ago, Lee, just FYI. <laughs> it's like, okay. Which that actually, sounds like something your brother yeah, would say. Yeah, which, which um, of course, I told her not to under any circumstances. But also was relieving in a way, right? It was, um, But there was something that was like, okay, they've known all along. They still love me. It's okay. Obviously, now we're five years out, and you're bravely having this conversation. Um, but like, I haven't, I haven't slept for a week <laughs> preparing for this because it just scares are you me. Yes, yeah. I mean, I'm exaggerating a little bit, um, but it's it scares me to talk about. And what are you afraid of? Um, I'm most afraid of anyone looking at my precious child any differently. Okay, so it's less about you and more about him. Yes. Um, But I'm also, I mean, listen, I know I'm flawed and I know that I don't do things perfectly. Um, But I, yeah, I don't want people judging me either. But that I can deal with more than, Yeah. I don't want anyone thinking anything, you know, he's my little baby, right? We're protective of our kids. Yeah. It was so interesting because you, you were already a mom. You had him on your hip or attached to you. Like nonstop, I remember that. Oh my gosh! Well, he wouldn't let me put him down, uh, you know. And that's it's, it's certainly this is this is the way motherhood and and attachment works, right? Is um, I don't put him down, so then he doesn't want to be put down, right? But he wouldn't go to anyone but me. And I, it, the sad, this is where it's sad for me is I think I needed that. I needed him to want only me. Yeah. And that's something I've struggled with too, right? Is is what are the repercussions for the emotional tangle? Yeah, the emotional yeah. entanglement of that and and what was good for me and whether or not it was good for him. You know, certainly my therapist helped me a lot with like, you were a good mother who was attentive to his needs. And I do think I was attentive to his needs. Perhaps I was too attentive to his needs, but I don't know. I, there's this, uh, certainly in my own studies of, of becoming a therapist, there's, there's this idea of being a good enough mother, right? You don't have to be perfect. You don't have to be great. You just have to be good enough. And that's something I'm trying to just hold on to. It's like, I'm just, I'm just trying to be good enough. I will say it over and over again. I can't, uh, the amount of people I've said this to, you are one of the most patient, loving, present mother. I mean, you're just, 
you're just a really good mom. And not in like the Pollyanna way and that you're like baking a million things and and just like you're <laughs> – Or baking anything for that or, No, but I just <laughs> – you just – allow each of your kids to be who they are and you're calm and you're patient and you're funny and you laugh at yourself and you laugh at them. I know everything, you know, that that's the outside of what I'm seeing. And obviously, and and thank you for, for trusting me to, to share all of this, but you are a more than good enough mother. And I think I relate to that and probably every mother on the planet does and that it's so imperfect yeah <laughs> how we show up for each of our kids and their circumstances and how we collide with them and our own insecurities about parenting or ourselves like that is just so natural sure one one thing my husband said to me which you know is good for a laugh um on my good days right is the like We've messed them up a hundred times since that incident, right? <laughs> um, and that's true, right? That's all kinds of things we do as a parent impacts our children and their development socially, emotionally, physically, all of those things. This was just such a traumatic thing that it just was so, I don't know, easy to point mm-hmm. to myself, right? Yeah. But it's true, right? We We impact our kids every day. Yeah. In good and bad ways. Yes. Yeah. Lord knows. I mean, thank God you're a child psychologist because my kids are going to need. <laughs> <laughs> you have the best kids. Oh, my gosh. You have the oh, best Lee. kids. Yeah. I am obsessed you with your kids. Yeah. We'll see when your microphone's off. <laughs> I know. I, no. There's no no changing that. I adore each of them. And they are also different and wonderful. They are very different. Yes. And as, as my dad said, who knew you'd be a good mom? <laughs> it's only he funny was, to us. But. He was. <laughs> he <funny>. was. <laughs> so Lee is referring to when we were on a vacation. It was my birthday. And her brother very kindly said, I would like to make a toast for Kimmy's birthday. And everyone, somebody's like, oh, we should all say something nice. And your dad with his southern accent and said, I just, I never knew you'd be a good mom. Never thought it. But you really are. You're a great mom. And I'm like, wait, <laughs> can we go back to the part where you wait, said I never thought you would? <laughs> oh, it's so good. Uh, oh, gosh. But so. yeah, just to, to continue on that vein. The good enough mother. Yeah, oh, no. When I think about it, like what I learned from this experience is actually something I learned a lot from you, you know, coming into our family, right? Which is the importance of self-care, right? And that's the one thing I took away from this, that like, no matter what's going on, whether you're taking care of your family or your kids or your husband or your mom or your dad, if you're not taking care of yourself, then you're going to fall asleep when you aren't supposed to, right? Like you have to do and ask for help in those ways. And that is something I learned really well from you, Kimmy, like, If there's something that everybody's going and doing this thing, but you want to go do this thing, that you go do it. And I love that, right? And I've learned to do that so much. And I've learned so much from your parenting in that way of like, I have to be this example for my kids. Yeah. And being the strong, independent mom. I don't do it as well as you do, but 
I'm well, trying. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad. I mean, I kind of like, depending on how I view it, I'm like, oh my gosh, am I selfish? No, <laughs> not at all. Oh my gosh, not at all. The no, opposite. I know. I, I've always been fiercely independent and you're right. I, I think I know that I, somewhere deep down, have always known that I can't be really good for anyone if I don't take care of myself. Um, no, what you're saying makes sense to me. I hear that. Thank you. So we won't go too much into this because I know it's, well, A, it's a little bit complex, but you have your third baby. So did you have three kids under five at this point? I had three kids under five. Yes. Yes. Yeah. We did decide that uh, I named him after my dad. His name is Robbie, after my dad. But I will say, my mom said, this is just an interesting tidbit. My mom was visiting over Christmas, and she said, you know, you always thought that baby was for you. He's like, and your dad did everything for you, but this one was for me. Just the fact that she gets to have a Robbie, and he is the most precious, sweetest baby in the world. And he adores her. And and so she, I thought that was a really sweet thing that really made me feel good that like, this baby was for her, and she gets to have a Robbie. And I think that's awesome. And eventually, you know, nothing traumatic happened at the hospital as far as an accident or anything, but he, eventually you get some concerning news about his health. So in layman's terms, can you explain that? Yes. So he, he was diagnosed with a mitochondrial disorder, um, a pretty high mutation on a gene, whatever, all these weird letters and numbers. Um that essentially meant he could have anywhere from nothing wrong with him at all, right, be asymptomatic for his life, or it could be fatal by the time he turns two, which is maybe the biggest mind, not nice word, <laughs> that you can have, right? Because it's like either he's going to be healthy or he's going to die. And that was literally what we were told. And we have no way of knowing which it's going to be. And so essentially, they started him on a whole bunch of different medications. He was followed really closely. And for two years, he was supposed to be very cautious. Essentially, any illness he got or any fever he got was going to exacerbate the process potentially because mitochondria is is the energy for our cells, right? And so if, if your energy is taxed based on an illness, you can kind of go into sepsis, right? Because all your energy is depleted. Mm-hmm. So... We were supposed to be really careful about him getting sick for the first two years. He was supposed to be hospitalized with any fever. We weren't supposed to travel. He wasn't supposed to go in public, right? It was crazy. I mean, crazy. But you know what happened then? COVID. COVID. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so guess what we didn't do? We didn't travel. We didn't go in public. And he didn't get sick. And it COVID might have saved his life. Yeah. And I'll never know, but I'm super grateful for this time that he he got he got sick and was hospitalized one time. It was a horrific experience, right? But he was one time in two years. Yeah. It's pretty good, right? Yeah. And after that two-year window, is it pretty much in the clear? Um, no, um, it's not. <laughs> he still gets followed really closely. He's, his main doctor is at CHOP in Philadelphia, Um he still gets followed really closely, and but but they expect him to remain pretty stable, at least until adolescence. 
uh-huh. when your body starts changing again around puberty, you can have issues again. So anytime, like if he is falling a lot or he doesn't seem to have as much energy or maybe he's stuttering when he's talking. Now we've got a second kid where these these flags are going off and it's hard not to be anxious. It's hard not to be anxious about your kids anyway, right? All moms are anxious, I think. I don't know. I am. Um, well, with with both of them, the amount of, and you said earlier, like, I like a plan. I love a plan. And the amount of uncertainty and almost surrender you have to the playing out over and over the worst case scenarios versus living in that constant state of anxiety and having none of those scenarios come to fruition. But that tension of just the not knowing. Absolutely. Well, and I think what what I try to do, and it's funny, like I I worry more about I worry <laughs> I worry more about my other child than I do about Robbie. Um, but my husband worries way more about Robbie, right? Because he is just concerned about, you know, when this could happen and the and the fear of it. And it's because my husband didn't have the OCD I had around the other one, right? And so we almost help each other out in those ways, right? which I think is good. But I think the way I deal with the diagnosis of Robbie in particular is I just, I just treat him totally normally. Yeah. Right. As if everything's totally fine. And and I just, I just have to trust that like, you know, by the time he hits puberty, we're going to have so much more information on this topic. And I just have to trust in that process, I think. Yeah. Trust seems like the word for all of yeah. this. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's, I just, the third one, I just really wanted to enjoy my baby. And I did, right? But I just wanted, this picture of motherhood that we all think we're supposed to have of just like snuggling with your baby and going for lovely walks in the park. And I don't know, that's still elusive to me. (laughs) Where do you see as the opportunity for change when it comes to postpartum health? I just think there's so little focus on the mom, right? I mean, you, I know this has been said a million times, but there's, you know, one six-week checkup where I don't even know what they're looking at, right? And they they maybe screen you like one, for the mom. one yeah. piece of paper. Yeah, for the mom, one piece of paper on like what your anxiety and depression is. But even if, you know, of course, on that one, I I tested off the charts of, of how poorly I was doing. But even then, they just send you with like literal computer printouts of who you can call, Right. There's no like plugged in resources of we're going to help to make sure you see this person and this person has availability and you'll see them this day and we're going to, you know, help you with that process. Right. It's still all on you to figure out, you know, new moms have enough to figure out. (laughs) Right. What if what if we helped the moms more as the moms help the babies, you know, just more infrastructure, more infrastructure, more support. And it's when I've talked to other moms about postpartum and my postpartum journeys have always been mental health, it's my impetus was always when I was making decisions like, how can my kid have a mother who like basically has her shit kind of together? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Like, sorry, Susu. I know <laughs> your mom does not like when we use bad words. Well, good thing um, I never have. We're so innocent. I uh, know. Um, I guess what I'm what I'm thinking out loud is I was always driven externally and internally by okay, how can I do this for my child so I can take care of the child? But I almost 
wonder if it's like this radical, brave thing to say, but also how about just doing it because that person deserves to feel whole and healthy. And then from there, everything else radiates and everybody who she's caring for is, but like if that in itself just wasn't enough or didn't even feel weird to say out loud, does that make sense? Absolutely. Right. That, That you don't even have to ask for the help, right? The help just should be there, yes. right? No matter what, for every, even the strongest mom in the whole world who doesn't have postpartum issues. Yes, that just should be the the way that it naturally is. It just it just should exist, right? You shouldn't even have to look for it. I agree with that, 100%. And you and I talked about it. There's like baby yeah. announcements and Instagram posts and photo shoots and like I'm back in my jeans and so many people, even without extra stuff, whatever that stuff is, just adjusting and isolation and loneliness and sleep deprivation and hormones and surgery and recovery, like that's all like basic. That's like if you're- Oh my gosh, right. That's if it goes well. That's good. That's if it goes well. Right. What, if you look back and you've said that you've worked on this with your therapist, what- were some of the things that could have been done to support you and support the environment? What would you say? What would you say could be done differently moving forward? I don't it's still, I, I still have a hard time going beyond just the answer of, I should have turned the lights on. Like I, my husband was asleep next to me, right? I didn't want to wake him up. So I laid in the dark, right? Which of course led to me falling asleep. I should have turned the lights on and I should have said, I, he needs to go to the nursery. Like I, I still can't let go of the blame, right? I, it's still not, I'm still not there. But I almost think like in that situation when you're a new mom, like I think the baby should go to the nursery, right? There's all this thing of, of bonding with the baby. Yeah, totally. And I get that. And I get the research behind that. But who's taking care of that mom? Who's making sure that mom is sleeping? Right. The mom who's trying to breastfeed. It's breastfeeding is hard. It is so hard. I don't know how anyone does it. And who's helping her with that? Right. Minus the lactation consultant that comes in once a day. That just needs to like be a part of the care. And then, and, and in other countries and other cultures, I should say it is. Yeah. But just the American culture is like the women are just supposed to do it on their own. And I don't know. I'm not sure we can. We need help at that point in our lives. Yeah, there is a lot of shame and pressure around putting your baby in the nursery at night so you can sleep. Yeah, yeah. A ton, actually. And that's why I didn't take him. I was like, oh no, I gotta be here. I gotta, I gotta, I don't want them judging me. I don't want him, you know. I've gotta be the warrior, A plus mom. Yeah. Yes, I've gotta be the A plus mom. I've gotta be the warrior. And I don't know, it bit me, right? There was a cost to that. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, there was a cost to that. And yeah. And and why is that even a issue of do you want the baby in your room? Why isn't it, hey mom, you just went through a major physical thing, whether it's a C-section or like mine, an easy natural birth. And mine was an easy natural birth. We're gonna take this baby because you need to sleep. Yeah. Right? This baby's gonna be fine, but you need to sleep. Why is that not even a part of that conversation? And that's even while you're still in the hospital, right? I mean, then they leave, they send you home with a baby and then it's like, what? <laughs> now what? Right. <laughs> you said you still think about it every day. Is forgiveness, forgiving yourself, does that feel possible to you? And and for the record, I don't think you need to be forgiven, but I 
hear, you know, that that you still have. I don't. Like, I don't even know what that would look like, right? I mean, I mean, this is where I've still got plenty of work to do <laughs> on this issue. Um, I'm not as hard on myself about it as I was at one point. But forgiving myself, I don't, I don't know. I, I know better. I knew I wasn't supposed to fall asleep with a baby on my chest. We all learned that and whatever. I don't know what to expect when you're expecting, whatever. Uh, so, I don't know. Well, yeah, and it's easier said than done. But yeah, no, it's easier said than done. As someone who, you know, loves you and cares about you, I just see it with so much grace and compassion and that it's just like, the most human mom thing ever to be exhausted after birthing a child and in a hospital and to fall asleep and that, but, but I, yeah, I think it probably happens a lot and the baby doesn't fall, right? Probably. And also I would be, I know myself well enough to know I would be exactly where you are. I'm a ruminator, a worrier, a deeply feeling person. Um, And it's your baby. It's your baby. And you, and he's, you know, those babies are so precious and so fragile and so vulnerable, right? I, I will say that the nurse um, that that was assigned to follow me around for a couple of days, thank God for her. I mean, she probably saved my life, honestly. She left me a note on her last day working with me that I still have and will never forget. And she said, sometimes accidents are just that and no one is to blame. Oh. And I hold on to that a lot, and I try to think, you know what, it was an accident. Maybe I'll get there someday. Yeah. How have you been changed, Lee, from January 2018 to who who you are today? I think a ton. Um, it's interesting. Like, I don't know if other people notice it as much as I do, but I, I think a ton, mostly in the sense of... I've learned that I couldn't do everything I thought I could do. You know, I used to think I could do everything 100%. And I can't. And and I know some people can, and I, that's really great for them, but I can't. And things like I, I didn't go back to work full-time after that. Um, I planned on it, and I still haven't been back to work full-time because it just didn't feel like I could, that I had the headspace for that. So that's been a big change, certainly in my identity around around work and and that. But just in the self-care piece, allowing myself space to care for myself and then also asking for the help when I need it. Like I've learned that asking for help is okay and that I have wonderful people around me who will help me, who will give it to me when I ask. Those are the two biggest changes. People listening to your story, you put a lot of thought and intention about sharing this thing, which you know, is is hard to talk about. What do you hope people take away from your story? That's a tough one. Um, that motherhood is hard and having a baby is hard. And it's also amazing and wonderful. And all the, you know, the Instagram perfect photos, right? It's that too, but it's also really hard and we need help. Everyone needs help, no matter how strong and capable and amazing you are. We all need help and it's okay to ask for it and it's okay to get it when you need it. Well, I love you, Lee, and I'm so grateful that we're family and grateful for this conversation. 
Me too. I love you. And thank you for all of your support and helping me through some tough times. Hopefully we're <laughs> back to the back to the charmed life. Back to the charmed sure. life. <laughs> all right. All right. Thanks, Kimmy. I want to thank Lee for her courage and vulnerability in sharing her story. And we're going to be talking more about accidents, shame, and self-forgiveness on next week's episode of A Little Wiser. So be sure to join us next Wednesday for that. Thank you for listening to this, the 97th episode of All the Wiser. And thank you for listening to the closing credits. That gives me, John LaSala, a chance to tell you that this podcast just couldn't happen without the likes of Erica Gerard and Tara Daigle, our producer and associate producer, respectively. And me? I've been editing the episodes and composing the music for All the Wiser since September of 2022. And I'm proud to be a part of this amazing little team led by your host, Kimmy Culp, who at this point in the podcast traditionally says, take care of yourself and one another. Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.